This is Salt and Spine. This is a message that's so much bigger than the Chef's Garden book. If this book does anything, it gets people to think about where is your food coming from, who's growing it, and building a relationship back with the fishmongers, with the cheesemakers, with the people that are producing the food that you're consuming, unless you're going to grow it yourself. And if you can do that, do it. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Farmer Lee Jones. Now, Lee grew up in Ohio, where his family has farmed for about six generations. Fresh into college, just 19 years old, Lee saw everything his family owned gone in a day. Their farm, their house, their car, after a hailstorm devastated their crops and interest rates were sky high. In that moment, the family pivoted to smaller scale farming, catering to farmers markets. And it was at such a farmers market in Cleveland, Ohio, that a chef approached them, asking where she could buy the types of vegetables she was used to cooking with in France, meaning organic, heirloom, chemical free produce. Now, Lee was in his early 20s at this point, and the family took a vote and decided to transition to growing only the best quality ingredients for chefs to use in their restaurants. And that paved the path forward. Now, today, Lee's family farm has become the Chef's Garden, which focuses on regenerative farming and supplies some of the world's greatest chefs with the quality ingredients that they rely on. There's also a major focus on research and innovation with the Culinary Vegetable Institute, a research and training center right on the farm that brings chefs and farmers around the globe together to learn about and innovate on vegetables. And now that wealth of generational knowledge is coming together in Lee's first cookbook, also titled The Chef's Garden. It's both a guide to more than 500 types of produce and herbs, both common and less known ones, and it's a cookbook with a collection of more than 100 recipes, including many developed by Jamie Simpson, the head chef at the Culinary Vegetable Institute. Now, if you thought you knew vegetables, wait until you see recipes for things like a seared rack of Brussels sprouts or cornbread stuffed zucchini blossoms or even sweets like an onion caramel and beet marshmallow. Now, Lee joined us remotely for this week's episode, calling in from the farm and wearing, of course, his signature overalls and red bow tie getup. Stick around. It's a great conversation. And we're closing today's episode with a vegetable game. Plus, we've got some great recipes from the chef's garden for you to make at home. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Farmer Lee Jones joined us to talk cookbooks. Well, hi, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hey, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And I, I have to ask first, should I call you Lee or Farmer Lee? Because everywhere I see you, you're always Farmer Lee Jones. You can call me anything but late for supper. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love whatever that. whatever you want to call me, whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I'm so thrilled to have you on Salt and Spine and to talk about your new book, The Chef's Garden, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But we always like to start with our guests just by learning a little bit more about you and your life and how you came to the career you're in today. So I know that you were you were pretty much born into a farming family, right? Your dad wanted to farm from very early on in his life, yeah? Right, yeah. My mom just ran across an old ad from high school that he was advertising plowing people's gardens for like $5 or something. And uh, okay. so in high school, he had bought his first tractor and was plowing gardens trying to generate revenue. That would have been in the 50s. So yeah, yeah, and I have have a picture of uh, of me on a tractor at a week old sitting on my dad's lap. 
So. I think I saw that was I saw that somewhere either in the book or in an, an article I was reading about you. It's a, a great photo to have. Yeah, it is. Yes. Now, did he come from a farming family, or how did he become interested in farming? Well, my grandfather did not farm, but we were from a farming family. There's, it probably goes back six generations. Okay. But my grandfather died at forty nine, okay. and my dad, you know, just had it in his blood, and he wanted to farm. He started out wanting to dairy farm, and it took so much capital right. to get involved in it. And uh, as we see today, the dairy farmers are just really struggling, especially the, the small farms like us. And, you know, it's coconut milk or oat milk, or I guess we're not allowed to call it milk. But right. uh, I've been intimately familiar of the last six weeks with the whole plant-based. So my brother and I have been on it for six weeks trying it. So okay. we're working well. Working with a fella, uh, Rip Esselton. His father, father is Dr. Esselton at the Cleveland Clinic and really promotes the plant-based diet. And, of course, it's our future for all of us, the plant-based, plant-forward future. Yeah. It's inevitable. Yeah, I want so. to talk more about that because I know that's that's a big part of your farm and your philosophy. But let's let's stay on your story a little bit longer if we can. So your, your dad starts farming and, and then you're born and you're pretty much helping out as much as you can from the earliest ages, right? Right. I mean, you know, literally from a kid, really at a, an age, probably looking back, probably too young. Uh-huh. I was the oldest in the family and there wasn't a lot of extra help. And, you know, you were pushed to, not, not that it was a big push. I mean, I wanted anything I could do to help on the farm and there'd be a good, good day. And he would say, we got a good day to work in the field. Do you want to go to school or do you want to you want to stay home and help. And of course, today, the truancy officer would be knocking on your right. door. But back then, it was a little different. Yeah. You could get away with it for a few days in spring planting season. Yeah. But uh, I headed down to Ohio State. And my dad actually had taken over for a, a business that he had worked for when he was young. And, you know, you have to recognize that this area is an amazing microclimate. We're 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie. Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest. In fact, uh, wine grapes were huge in this area, even before Napa Valley. But as near as we can figure, there were about 330 vegetable growers in this county alone. Wow. And it's, as far as we can figure, the largest concentration of vegetable growers in any county of any place in the world. Now, you can say, wait a minute. You can go to California, and there are counties that are 100% agriculture from north, south, to east, to west. But it's owned by 30 farms yeah. that each have 30,000 acres. These were, today, in today's days, we would call them artisanal farmers. But they were small family farms. About 100 acres was their size. But as roads and refrigeration began to develop, the small family farms were having a difficult time competing. If you go back to, like, before 1945, and if you look at where we're at, if, if some of the listeners um, don't know where Huron, Ohio is, Sandusky, Ohio, uh, it's always on Discovery Channel for highest, tallest, fastest roller coasters. Uh-huh. Uh, we're home to Cedar Point, yeah. the amusement park about eight miles from us. But, you know, if you think about Huron and in in that Erie County, Cleveland an hour away, Toledo an hour away, Columbus two hours away, Pittsburgh three and a half hours away, Cincinnati four hours away. You have this amazing microclimate right in the middle of this large metropolitan area surrounding it. And so those farmers did quite well. But as the roads and refrigeration got better, outside competition started coming. 
chain grocery stores started coming, the old Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company and Kroger, Pick and Pay, Big Bear, mm -hmm. Fisher Fazio. So larger scale production was necessary. And a lot of those small family farms near Erie County couldn't supply enough. They couldn't supply truckloads. They didn't have the refrigeration. The fellow that my dad went to work for had invested in that. Uh, Mr. Nichols, who my dad went to work for at, at 14 years old, had no sons and he had no daughters interested in taking over the business. And my dad ended up buying the business out. They had refrigeration, they had hydro cooling, palletization, boxing, packaging. They delivered every place east of the Mississippi River by the truckloads. High volume, low margin. Yeah. You know, that was that was my farming life was you know, about my dad was farming about 1,200 acres of fresh market vegetable, plus buying from other smaller farms in the community and packing all under one label to supply the demands. And uh, I don't know whether the listeners can remember, maybe only from the history books, but, you know, right now you can go to the bank and you can borrow money for about 2.75, 3%. Historically low in the economy got all turned upside down in the late 70s, early 80s, and the interest rates actually hit 21%. For a couple of months, 22%, wow. Brian. Yeah. And um, my dad got wrapped up in the middle of that, and he had a very devastating hailstorm, and it, it wiped out all the crops. They couldn't repay the loans. At 19 years old, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister and all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned off one by one, every tractor, every piece of equipment, the farm, our house, my mother's car. I mean, you know, it was, it, it's one of those days that was very, very, very painful day. My, my parents were non-drinkers, non-smokers, hadn't missed a day at church in 20 years and had really worked hard. Yeah. And to stand there and watch a lifetime of work be auctioned off a piece at a time in one day, it was a horrific day. And you're you're in college at the time, right? You first or second year? I was down at oh, yeah, I was down at Ohio State in marketing uh -huh. and some ag class, agricultural classes. And when we lost the farm, I left school, came back, and went to work with Dad. There was no money. There was nobody that would loan us any money. And it's not a rags to riches story. That's not what I'm trying to paint. We just started over, and we started at farmers markets. We're interestingly, we're at a historic low. And I really blame my mother's generation for that. They didn't want to do anything that my grandmother's generation did. Sure. And, you know, if you go back in World War II, the men were all off fighting. And the women were then tasked to leave the homes and go build submarines, build army tanks and machine guns, and do whatever they could to support the war. After the war ended... Families recognized that they could be a two-income household. Mm -hmm. And so mom and dad were now working out of the house. And it allowed a crack in our system. And it'll, and the focus, the pendulum swung, if you will, to convenience. Brian, do you remember the old TV dinners? Oh, yeah. Swanson. Yeah. You, you, see, you know, they were in those like little aluminum type uh -huh. tray. I think it was even before microwave. I think you put them in an oven. Yeah the nasty frozen peas and the carrots yeah. and the instant mashed potatoes and a Salisbury steak. Uh -huh. And mom, mom thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread sure. because, you know, she had worked all day. She could pop those things in the oven and, you know, and presto you had, but 
we made the focus be about convenience rather than the quality and integrity of the food. We lost our way. Right. So farmers markets were at a historic low. They were not in vogue in the 80s. Yeah. But we started back at farmers markets because it was the only place we knew where to start over because it was instant cash. We talked a neighbor into renting us a few acres. We, you know, it's not like dairy with five pounds of vegetable seeds and a few acres you can plant radishes and lettuce and greens and you can be at market and convert into dollars. Right. And it was very hand to mouth. Yeah. And so you, you start rebuilding, you start farming again and, and selling at farmer's markets. And that sort of ultimately leads to, I think, what you call in the book, the squash blossom incident, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lady, we knew nothing about chefs, uh-huh. Brian. I mean, we were at farmer's markets and uh, the stories that I could share with you, you just wouldn't believe. I mean, you, you never throw anything away on the farm. And part of that goes back to, you know, there was a time not in our so far distant history that you couldn't buy a new pair of tennis shoes or a new car or gas was rationed. Uh, there was ration stamps for fuel. All of those materials were being used in the war. Right. And so kind of the, the, the post-depression and the post-war people like my father, you saved everything. And on the farm, you never threw anything away. There was a, a used equipment area because you might be building something where that you might steal a part off of something to patch something up. And so, sure. I mean, we were going to these farmer's markets and trucks that wouldn't even get a bid at the sheriff's sale. And that was a nightmare within itself. But we met a chef. Her name was Iris Balin. And, you know, there's a saying that behind every man, there's a good woman. Uh-huh. Well, I think out in front of every good man, there's a better woman telling them what to do. <laughs> and this, this was the case. Iris Balin was far more knowledgeable than we were. She had seen a world in Europe where you went to the market every day and you got your fresh vegetables, you got your bread, you got your fish or your fresh chicken, and you came home and you consumed it and you did it over and over again and you had fresh product direct from the producer. Right. But we had lost our way. And so here was this woman saying, grow squash blossoms. That was one of the first things that she, the first thing she asked for, but she was looking for quality vegetables grown for the flavor, grown for the integrity. Uh, grown without chemical, grown the right way. And she believed that there would be enough chefs that would be willing to support it. And it was so different than what the universities were teaching. You know, if you look, go back to the Earl Butts days. Earl Butts was the Secretary of Agriculture. Uh And his message to family farms was to get big or get out. And of course, follow the money. The pharmaceutical companies and the chemical companies were making all kinds of margin. And so they found an opportunity to be able to say that they wanted to help the farmers by providing them chemicals so that they could reduce their costs. And agricultural products was one of the few products that we were able to compete in the global marketplace on. The unions had pushed us into a non-competitive situation with the automobile industry. So we weren't shipping cars out of the country. A lot of things were compressed by that. There wasn't a union in the farmers. We were producing food cheap. And it is, and as it relates to our income, we still do. Farmers, American farmers produce food as cheap as any country, if not cheaper than any country in the world, as it relates to our income in society. Yeah. That, you know, that being said, it was an item that it was a commodity item that we could compete cheap on. So how do farmers do that? They have to keep their costs as low as possible. 
and produce as many tons per acre as possible. And if they produce enough tons per acre, keep the cost down, then they stay in business. So the chemical companies recognized that they could eliminate steps for the farmer. So they had to do less steps to produce the product so they could produce it cheaper and keep the cost lower. So consequently, you get genetic modified seeds. You get the chemicals, which are killing all the biology in the soil. Sure. And there's nothing left. And so it's public information. And I would challenge listeners to don't don't believe me. Don't believe you. Google it. Yeah. The nutritional levels in food have gone down by 50% in 50 years. And they're going down at an increasing rate. The way that we're growing them, the soil is dead. The biology is not there. And we put in a lab three years ago on the farm. My dad was just, I mean, you know, going back, I mean, what Iris was proposing was for us to grow quality product without chemical, grow for the flavor, and enough chefs would support us. And we were here we were doing, we were five years into going to these farmers markets. We were scratching out a living. Right. And Iris is proposing this. We're starting to grow a handful of things for chefs. They're coming down to the markets. It indicated to us that there was a demand because chefs were coming and looking for something they couldn't find. And we actually had a family vote around a cardboard card table out in the barn. Uh And they said, look, we're either going to do farmer's markets and continue on that path, or we're going to completely abandon that. We're going to start and grow for chefs, and we're going to try and grow product for the flavor, the integrity, the quality of the product. And we're going to have a family vote right now. And I'm 23, 24 years old. I voted first. I said, look, we're five years into this. It's 99.9% of our business. The chefs want everything entirely different than what we're used to doing. And, you know, this is really going to be a pain in the arse. Sure. And I voted go with the farmer's markets. Yeah. And everybody at the family table voted the same way as me. We got to my dad. He took a clenched fist and he slammed it down on the table. We had some water glasses on this cardboard table. The, when he slammed it down, it was a springboard. The glasses went flying. Huh. He said, absolutely not. He said, my vote counts for five. Yours only counts for one. What Iris is suggesting we do is the direction this country needs to go, and it's the direction this family needs to go. It resonated with that because he was old enough to have seen that world that Iris described in Europe. Sure. And we had lost the way, and it made sense to him, and we couldn't see it. We, we just couldn't see it, and he did. And he said, nope, this is the direction. So we abandoned five years of farmer's market work. And he looked at me with a pointed finger. He said, you're going to get out there. You're going to find every chef you can find. And you're going to find out what they want us to grow. And your brother and I are going to stay home and we're going to figure out the right way to grow it. Yeah. And they started digging into agricultural books that were 100, 150, 200 years old. If you think about that, Brian, I mean, it was pre-chemical, pre-synthetic fertilizer. They were rebuilding that soil naturally rather than chemically. Right. Well, how are they doing that? And why? how did we lose our way? We lost our way with convenience uh, with the TV dinner in, in home, but we lost our way as farmers. Right. And so we have this amazing disconnect that has allowed a 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies. We believe there's a direct correlation between the way that we're farming chemically and in mass scale and the health or the lack thereof of our nation. Yeah. And it, uh, it becomes up to our generation to make that change. And that change is happening. And it has to for sustainability of our society. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. 
This is a message that's so much bigger than the Chef's Garden book. If this book does anything, it gets people to think about where is your food coming from? Who's growing it? And building a relationship back with the fishmongers, with the cheesemakers, with the people that are producing the food that you're consuming, unless you're going to grow it yourself. And if you can do that, do it. Right. And it's exciting to see at a historic level of just in a 30, 37, 38 years, historic low in farmers markets to a historic high. Yeah. More vegetable seeds grown or sold in the United States in the last two years than in the history of the United States. Wow. You know, it's it's exciting to see. Yeah, it really is. And and your family was really at the forefront of that. I mean, early on, I know Charlie Trotter was a big influence to you. I know either you or your dad met with Alice Waters. I know you talk about that in the yeah. book, um, Coming to yeah. California. Yeah. What sort of impact as, as you started to work with chefs did that have on your understanding? I mean, you just talked a lot about that. But like, how did that change your family's approach to food you you come from a family like many of us who grew up with you know embracing tv dinners embracing that convenience have you have you seen a shift in your family's personal attitudes too oh absolutely i mean we sought these chefs out because they were committed to having ingredients grown the right way and we had read about alice waters and my dad got in our old pickup truck and made the trip out there uh, she was speaking at something and he found her and got her to the side and picked her brain. Yeah. And Charlie Trotter did more for our family than we could ever repay. He loved vegetables. Yeah. Jean-Louis Paladin was a highly touted European chef that came to the Watergate Hotel in D.C. Right. And, you know, he knew we were serious. We were desperate to figure out a way to be able to survive in agriculture. And this seemed like a path that would could be could be meaningful to us and meaningful to others. And it was the it was the right vote at the right time. And that was the path our family took. We had a unified vision and we worked together. In many cases, we replaced labor for capital because there was no money. I mean, we probably were broke three times in the last 37 years and weren't smart enough to know that we were. So we never quit. Sure. Um, it's just, it's just some hard times. And, and it's, you know, and here we are, we're back at COVID, right. you know, and we're facing down the eye of a barrel again and it's a it's a rough time yeah and i think i think people forget sometimes that the the model of convenience i mean we're talking about industries agriculture and farming and also your supply in restaurants both industries with historically low margins historically very fragile yeah. industries i mean a, a bad hailstorm can knock out a farm a pandemic can knock out restaurants i mean it's this question of values, right? And what we prioritize as a society and where we're putting our money and where we're investing. Well, that's absolutely right. And, you know, when this COVID hit, 100% of our business was restaurants. Yeah. So it can knock out restaurants, but it's a trickle down effect. Right. And we had to make a pivot pretty quickly. And so we immediately, within 24 hours of getting a full picture of how severe this thing was, I mean, I think all of us thought it was going to be a couple of months and it was going to go away uh -huh. and it didn't. And so we went to a nationwide home delivery because we felt like we could provide value. We were afraid to go to a grocery store. People, society was afraid to go to a grocery store, yeah. but they had a need for quality ingredients. And so we switched and we had a lot of products, just like our grandparents stored products in the root cellars. We've replicated root cellar conditions and we had 
all this product available that we had harvested late fall, had it available in March and the restaurants weren't able to use it. So we were able to retool it, if you will, and package it for home delivery in smaller amounts and start shipping it out. And we were desperate to try and keep our team employed. There was 167 full-time team members uh, on the farm. And it was really critical for us to do everything we could to keep our family together and to keep keep them with a paycheck to keep their families going. Yeah, It was a scary time. It still is. Yeah, uh, We're seeing light at the end of the tunnel. We're hopeful these vaccines are going to kick in and hopefully we're on the path to recovery. It's not going to be the old normal. It's a new normal. Right. And, you know, so it's, a, it's a different world. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Farmer Lee Jones. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of The Chef's Garden, as well as several featured recipes. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Farmer Lee Jones, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club, where you can cook along with featured authors every quarter. We can only do it thanks to listeners like you, and you can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. And now back to our conversation with Farmer Lee Jones, author of The Chef's Garden. You, you talked a little bit about where we are today in terms of our relationship to food, more farmers markets than ever. You mentioned a, a stat I hadn't heard before about seed sales in the past couple of years. Yeah. I'm curious about your perspective moving forward, because we are at this sort of pivotal moment coming out of this pandemic, having seen the shift in the last few years. It also wasn't an overnight thing, right? I mean, your family made this pivot to growing vegetables in this way in the 80s. Alice Waters, I know, is celebrating 50 years this year since Chez Panisse, her restaurant, opened. So there's a lot of chefs, farmers, folks who have been pushing us in this direction as a country and a society for decades. What what sort of do you see as the next the next thing? Where do we go from here? Well, and it's very exciting. I think that as devastating as this was to all of us, we've all lost personal friends or family from this. I mean, um, as horrific as this is, out of the ashes of this devastation, new businesses, new ideas, new ways to be able to approach things, to feed people. I mean, chefs are the most, some of the most creative people I've ever, and the most giving and generous people that I've ever been associated with. And they've found ways to survive. We're survivors. We're survivors in this industry. We're survivors in this country. And we figure it out. And this this was a hard blow to our country and to the world. But we're going to figure it out. And out of this, new things are coming. I think one of the big things, one of the key things that we've got to look at, I think at this point, everybody gets, look, I like a piece of steak as well as the next guy. I think that we get that we have to be a plant-based, plant-forward future. It's inevitable for society. And I think that we get that. Where I think that we're falling a little short, and I think the new frontier and the next frontier is looking at the integrity of the plant. We put this lab in, and we're testing some things off the shelves of what I would call box stores. In other words, large 
chain grocery stores. We're going in and buying them retail sure. off of the shelves, and we're bringing them in and we're testing them. And quite frankly, in a lot of situations, organic, inorganic, the stuff is very low in nutrient nutrient density. And what's interesting is is that we're finding that the larger the product is, the lower the nutritional levels are. Uh, we're testing our own product at stages from a micro mm-hmm. all the way up to larger stages. The, the smaller the product, the more intense the nutrient nutrient density is as a general rule. Eating the rainbow is an old cliche saying, but it still really rings true. Looking for ways to incorporate color into the diet of healthy vet fruits and vegetables. But, you know, really looking at how we're growing those. And the other thing that we're really seeing huge differences, I mean, kale that my grandmother would have put in the crock pot or put in the pot was big enough and tough enough. You had to cook it about a half a day to get it tender. If we can eat this stuff raw, we get about 50% more nutrient levels. In many cases, we're cooking the nutrient out of this stuff. So if we can... If we can harvest it younger, it doesn't need to be cooked as long because it's more tender. Uh, and there's many, many different varieties of a lot of things. We we tend to be accustomed in going into the grocery store and steam, you know, Blue Yates kale, one or two varieties. Right. There's dozens, if not hundreds of varieties of kale. And we're growing a lot of those because it gives us color and diversity and texture and size and shape. But also, when you're picking these younger, we're seeing them worked into salads. We tend to think of lettuce only in a salad. And getting that texture and all of these different, getting the cruciferous or the brassica family into the salads raw, boy, can make a huge impact. And even for the meat eaters out there, look, they like their meat and potatoes. You can work this stuff in. It's not that big of a leap of faith to say, I'm going to work some kale into my salad and you can do it and you can make them taste good. Right. It's not like it's pain. Right. You know, I think you go back to what is it? Socrates or somebody let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Uh I mean, we're at a point when, and I, I, I hope it's not a bad thing. We tended to think that, you know, medicine tasted bad and medicine was bad for us. You had to drink your, take your cough syrup and it was never very good, but the food doesn't have to be bad to be good for us. And with a little creativity, you don't have to be a chef to work some of this stuff into the diet. I did some, uh, we've been doing kind of a fun thing. Our chef, who's really talented, can just blow the socks off of looking at food in different ways. And we've been doing side by side of our home delivery boxes where we're opening them up. And I will say it before anybody else will. I'm a hack as a chef. (laughs) Okay. Now that doesn't mean I don't like to get in the kitchen and play. And really the point is, you know, we're opening the box and he's cooking a dish and I'm cooking a dish. And in some cases, I don't even turn the stove on to be able to create my dish. Sometimes you're in a hurry. The reality is in life, we're in a hurry and you got to put something together, but you can still work some of that stuff in pretty easy. Yeah. And it's not, it's not undoable. It's not unreachable for the lowest of hacks in the kitchen like me, you know, to be able to put, get some greens and some color into our diets. Yeah. Well, that's a great transition to your your new book, The Chef's Garden, because that's a lot of what you're doing here is talking about the vegetables and how they're grown and the varieties and the nutrients, but also presenting recipes too, which your team developed. I know you're you're so well versed in agriculture and vegetables in particular and produce. I'm curious to know what you learned putting together this book. It's it's not a small book. It's 640 pages. It's a serious volume. 
that dives into a lot of the what folks may not understand about the science of vegetables and produce and how to use it in the kitchen. What was this book process, this cookbook writing process like for you? Oh my goodness. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's just flat out a lot of work. I, I really had no idea what we were getting involved in. Um, I, I think that the key was really having a good agent and having a good publisher that had a heck of a lot more experience about it than we did. And having a great writer, yeah, uh, Kristen Willie. I don't know that there was anybody better suited to do this job. She was, I believe, nine or ten years at Food and Wine. Uh-huh. She is just fanatic for the detail, and it's really, you know, it's it's about the detail of finishing this stuff and backing it up with references. And you know, we're knowledgeable about things. My dad says that. You know, we have to continue to make mistakes at a faster rate than the competition. And uh, he'll also be, he would be the first to admit, we lost him in August. They still struggle to kind of talk about him in past tense and, and yeah. present. He He's very much with us every day. Yeah, I got to work with him for 50 years and then church on Sundays. So one of those things that are hard to see, he says it, he said it. And uh, but he said he would also say that we also make do make mistakes well. So, I mean, a lot of this is about the mistakes we've made and trying to figure it out. We're not if if this thing is a mile long, if the if the the measuring stick is a mile long, we think we've got the first foot figured out. Uh So, you know, for us, it's about doing you got to the best way to learn is by the mistakes. But the book having a great team around you, this is not something we could have done individually. It would have never been finished. Uh, and of course the chef, I mean, he's got a lot of work in there and his team, Jamie Simpson and, and, uh, sous chef Tristan. I mean, those guys really put a lot of, lot of sweat and blood in that. And, you know, I tend to think a recipe is a place to start. Um, that they don't have to be followed in detail. You go with what you like and you put a little more of what you like in and a little less of what you don't. But one of the things that was really adamant in these recipes, they all had to be tested by an outside source. And so we had folks that we sent the product to with the recipes because it was imperative that the recipes did what we said they would do. Right. That's That was really a necessity of of making sure that this book was accurate. You want to, ch- you want to change it up. That's up to you, but the, the recipes are tested and they will do what they say. Yeah. And we tried to make those recipes approachable. There were times where we had to kind of reel Jamie back in a little bit and um, you know, and keep it approachable. And I think that they really are. It's an exciting project, a labor of love. Uh, I'm so glad that we got to do, the parts of it while dad was still here because he was such an integral part. And, you know, in many ways that knowledge is gone. My brother and I and our team have tried to learn my dad hand weaned and hand groomed Judith Ender, who now runs the, the R and D lab on the farm. Okay. And she's been here nearly 20 years. Okay. Um, so we're here, we're moving forward. We've never been more excited about the future of agriculture and the future of food and the exciting things to come. Although we've gotten ourselves as a society into a big mess with the integrity of the food, there's hope and there's a lot of great people out there doing it, writing about it. The agricultural world is finally recognizing that the chemical way is not the only way. Right. And we're seeing doctors show up at, at, um, 
at food conferences that usually were only filled with farmers and the doctors are showing up. You know, the Western culture was always about you get a problem, you get a sickness, you get a disease. Here's the medicine used to help fix it. Uh The Eastern culture is get the body in balance and defend against the disease in the first place. Right. And I think that, you know, it's something that the Western culture doctors have not had a lot of They'll admit that they didn't get a lot of time on nutrition and food as medicine when they were doing their studies for a doctorate. It was more about, I'm not a doctor, yeah. I'm a farmer. Yeah. It was more It was more about Western culture of, of what medicines to try and help with certain diseases. And it's exciting to see this shift happen in America. Yeah. And I think we're getting it. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. We always end with a little game, but before we switch to our game, I, I got to ask you one more thing because you have a signature look and you decided to write about your, your attire in the book. Did, yeah. did you know that that would become a part of the book because you're, you're asked about it so frequently? And can you tell us what inspired that? Because I think that's such a great story too. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there's an old saying on the farm that you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Okay. Now, again, that kind of goes back to the old saying about farmers never throw anything away. If you're going to take an animal's life, number one, you want to respect the animal and utilize every part of that animal as respectfully as possible. And the ears were not edible unless you were really hungry. I don't know too many dishes with pig's ears, but they could make a a purse out of it. It would never be a silk purse, but uh, it would be a purse. But uh, one of the few books that I read in high school was John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. And it really resonated with me. I think it's like 560 some pages. Yeah. And if the listeners are not readers, you can actually go to Netflix and the old black and white. It's about a three hour. You need to, it needs to be one of those rainy or cold days where you're just going to stay in uh-huh. and stay in your jammies yeah. and, and watch the old Netflix. Henry Fonda is like 21 years old in this book yeah, or in the, in the movie. And he's the main character, but, it's talking about the, the Great Depression right after the Dust Bowl, and a lot of families and a lot of farmers had lost their farms and couldn't pay their mortgages. Banks took those the land over, and they were desperate to be able to find a way to be able to survive. And there's, there's scenes in the book, there's scenes in the movie where there'd be just hundreds of families on an old farm truck with maybe even three generations in this truck grandma and grandpa and the working family and then the children and then the dog and maybe a cow or every all of their belongings loaded onto this old vehicle that maybe in some cases barely ran and they had no money and sometimes they were running out of gas but there would be large farms orange groves or peach groves or apple harvest where they needed high amounts of labor Mm -hmm. and the word would get out that there was work and that's all they wanted to do was to work to earn a living. And so there would be droves, just lines of farmers and families lined up to get into these places. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they were really taken advantage of in that they would pay them a dollar and a half a day to work. If they wanted to stay on the camp and have a hot meal, it was another dollar. And if they wanted a shower, it was an extra quarter. They'd almost end up owing at the end of the day. Yeah, They made very little. But there's a scene on a Saturday night, despite their plight, despite how broken down things are and how destitute they are, they maintain their pride and their integrity. And on a Saturday night, as worn and torn as their overalls are, they're clean. 
and they have white shirts and overalls and bow ties on, and they have a square dance. Uh-huh. And for every person out there that ever wanted to be a farmer, for every small farmer that lost a farm, or for every small farmer out there, I wear these every single day. I have 18 pairs of overalls, 18 white shirts, and 18 red bow ties. Uh-huh. I wear them to church. I've worn them to funerals. I've actually conducted wedding ceremonies. I married my son in my overalls. Okay. Uh, my conducted my son's service right. to him and his wife. And um, on my best day, I couldn't put a three-piece suit on and look nearly as handsome as you, Brian. <laughs> so I might as well go as a farmer. And, you know... I think that the point is, regardless of what you do, regardless of who you are, you can take pride and integrity in who you are and stand up for it. And when we were kids, my my parents always had junk vehicles. They were rusted out. They were embarrassing. My dad would spend his last nickel on anything to try and build the farm. If it was a new tractor or new piece of equipment that he thought would help propel the farm, he would invest in it. But he always thought a transportation vehicle was a poor investment. And so we always had a deal on a car. And if we were late for school and they would be giving us a ride to school, we'd always ask them to drop us off a block before school because we were embarrassed to pull up in front of the school with our old car. And you know what? Today, I take pride in pulling an old muddy pickup truck up anyway. I've gone in valet at the Ritz-Carlton before. And it's okay to be okay in your own skin and go as you are and take pride in that. And so... If you see me today, if you see me tomorrow, if you see me in New York City, if you see me in Las Vegas, wherever you see me, you will see me in a pair of overalls and a white shirt and a red bow tie and a ball cap. I'll take my cap off if I go inside of a, a building or something to be respectful, but uh, I, I I am what I am. I'm not proud as in boastful, but I'm proud of being a farmer, and that's what it really stands for. That's, that's a great story and, and a great lesson. Thank you so much for sharing it. Well, we always end with a little game, so I thought we'd play a, a couple quick rounds of our vegetable-themed game today. So we've got these cards that we always use. There's a few stacks here. So we've got vegetables, which are, of course, vegetables. Proteins, which are proteins, also self-explanatory. We've got a stack of flavor cards. So those are um, spices or herbs, flavoring agents, basically. And then we've got a stack of secret ingredient cards, which can just be a, it's a wild card. It can be any sort of thing. So I thought we'd pick a vegetable and then leave it up to you if you want to pick any flavor or protein or secret ingredients to go along with it. But it sounds like you've been practicing with your chef, Jamie, cooking alongside him (laughs) something. So think of this as kind of like Food Network's Chopped, right? What are you going to make with with the vegetable and Perhaps you can even tell us about a variety we might not know of or some sort of interesting thing about the vegetable. How does that sound? Well, <laughs> uh, like I told you, I'm a hack as a chef and I'm a, I'm a farmer, not a chef. So I got to judge on Iron Chef several times. I'm, I could judge it, but boy, as far as cooking it, boy, I, saw I, I haven't missed many meals, but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll give it a try. Give it a try. And, all right, and, let's... and at least maybe we can learn something about a vegetable or two. So, um, all right. The, all the right. first vegetable we drew is sweet potatoes. Anything you want to pair with that? Yeah. Uh, chocolate sauce. Oh, really? We uh, we have a, a volunteer fire department out in our community. Milan, Ohio is a village of 1,200. And so it's our neighbors and, and folks in our community that volunteer their services, and they go through training, and they're very good. 
but every year we invite them and their significant others to come and we serve them a dinner as a thank you. We do that at the Culinary Vegetable Institute. And uh, I would say our community is definitely meat and potato eaters, but we have about uh, 15 different varieties. We're working with Louisiana State University, LSU, uh, and they're trying to preserve and save old heirloom varieties of sweet potatoes that really would have been banned. And it's much like what we've seen happen with the heirloom tomatoes. The only sweet potatoes we're going to see in the grocery store are these ones that are all perfectly shaped and they're big, but there's amazing varieties of sweet potatoes out there. And they're so sweet that they can actually be used at dessert. And so we had a huge buffet at the end of the dinner and had all the toppings that you might see on a Sunday, sure. from nuts to strawberry sauce to caramel to chocolate sauce. And you cook, cook these beautifully and then put this in. At first, they were like, what in the world are they doing? And they tried them, and they were blown away that the sweet potatoes could actually be eaten for dessert. They're just that good. Yeah. I love that. A sweet potato Sunday bar. That sounds, that sounds great. And I think yeah. we're, we're used to like sweet potato pie, right? But often a lot of added sugar and things to sweeten that, but, but you can no, really have no yeah. added sugar, right? That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more. Um, okay. The next one we drew is cauliflower. What can you tell us about cauliflower and what might we do with it? Well, you know, one of the big things in the book that we talk about is that at every single stage of the plant's life, it offers something unique to the plate. But that's also looking at the plant in different ways than we've ever considered. I'm not going to do it. I mean, cauliflower right now is really becoming huge in the plant base because it's so versatile. Right. But, you know, if you think about a cauliflower, if, if any of the listeners have ever grown one, you have these amazing green leaves that come up over. Back in the day, you had to pull those leaves up around it and put a rubber band or tie it. And what you were doing was creating a canopy so that it didn't get sunburned. Mm. Otherwise, it wouldn't be this snow white color. Now, there's purples now and there's uh, uh, green and yellow, yeah. lots of different colors. But They've got what they call self-blanching types where the leaves will come up over and block the sunlight to keep it from getting sunburned. But those leaves, so then you cut the head and you've got this beautiful plant that has spent eight, nine months growing. And we waste this waste issue in America and across the world is a significant thing. We've seen the commercials about 40% food waste. It's real. Yeah, It may be even low. But if you look at that plant, all the energy that's gone into that, we cut the head of cauliflower out, and you've got all these leaves. They're in the cruciferous family. Broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, kale, all in the same family. Those leaves are every bit as good as a cauliflower or a, a, a collard green. Yeah. And you can take those, you can dice them down, and you can cook them just like your grandma did with collard greens, and they're super high in vitamin C. Uh, so eat the leaves. The, so. I don't know if I'm answering the question of the game, but the leaves of the cauliflower are edible and you can use more parts of that plant than you would think of. Yeah. Yeah. So ham hock, I'd, I'd add uh, ham hock with my cow. So it's not going to be the head of cauliflower, sure. but of those leaves as a green, add the ham hock. Yeah, that's so important. I think um, for, I grew up never eating the stem of the broccoli either. And yeah, all the flavor, yeah, right. all the nutrients. It's, it's incredible. You got to use all the parts of the plant. Absolutely. We're, we did Brussels sprout the other day and you can use, we're familiar with the, the marrow, the bone marrow right. uh, in an animal. There's actually a marrow in the sprout. And we, we did a dish the other day. Jamie did the dish. We used the bone marrow 
if you will. Okay. We take the outer skin and peel that off, and you get this nice tender portion in the center. And we serve the Brussels sprout, you know, in a raw form with the bone marrow of the center of that stalk and the leaves, like a collard green. And every part of that plant was used. Look wow. at that plant in different ways than we've ever considered before and experiment and play. Every single that part of that plant offers something unique to the plate and we reduce the waste. Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you so much for playing our game and thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. It's so great to talk to you, Lee. Oh my gosh, Brian, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from the chef's garden. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our intern, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.